Good morning. Well, you guys are chipper this morning. I appreciate that. That was good. Um, welcome to Tomball Bible Church. My name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor here. It's my pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. We've been walking through a series entitled All Things New, where we've begun digging into the things that God is doing by His Spirit, renewing and changing us. As we walk with Jesus. And so the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we believe that he's the only son of God who died for our sins and rose again. The spirit of God begins doing a whole number of new things in us. And what we want to talk about today is really at the centerpiece of the Christian life. It's the core of practically what it looks like each day to live as a Christian. And so what we're digging into is this idea of in Christ we have new love. Not only a new capacity to love as the Spirit of God is walking alongside us, strengthening us, but we begin to love new things and to love them differently. And, and so what I want to begin with is, is just this simple reality that the way we love is central to the Christian faith. Now, we, before we jump into that, we want to say a few things. Is that becoming a Christian is about really one thing. It's about believing. We believe that Jesus is the only Son of God, and we believe that while we were sinners deserving of God's judgment, that His Son, who was without sin, died in our place for our sin, paying the penalty that we deserved. And that He rose again from the grave in victory over sin and death. And that when you believe in Him, When you trust Him, your sins are forgiven because Jesus has paid for them. And His righteousness is credited to your account at the moment of faith. Beyond that, we have the promise of eternal life because of His victory over death. And so that's what what it takes to become a Christian. So someone says, what must we do to be saved? It's, It's a simple response. You believe the gospel of what Jesus has done for you. And so I don't want what we're going to talk about today to be confused for the requirement of salvation. Rather, what we're going to dig in today is the practical application of being saved. So what does our salvation accomplish in us and what should characterize our lives having trusted in Jesus? And so I want you uh, to begin with me in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to begin in the words of Jesus. Now, we're going to start in verse 36, but I want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, Jesus, his ministry is coming towards the end. He is in the city of Jerusalem. He's teaching to large crowds. And and there's a number of people that wish to discredit him. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Both of them come from a different angle. But in the end, uh, they have a problem with Jesus because he has a problem with the way they're running things. So they would send people to Jesus and they would get together and ask their toughest question in the hopes that they would somehow get Jesus to say something foolish or they might stump him in some way, discredit him. And so the question arises from one of the Pharisees after the Sadducees swing and miss. Is what is the greatest of the commandments? That's the question. Because if, you, if you've read uh, the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you'll find that there are a lot of commandments. There are, in fact, 613 regulations in the Old Testament. And so what they've asked is, which one of these is the most important? And Jesus answers with something I think is very significant, not only that he sidestepped their issue and turned it over on their heads, but that it instructs us about it, what it looks like day in, day out to live as a Christian. So in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, this is teacher. 
which is the great which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. So the question is, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers as you should love God with everything you have. But he notice he does more than just answer the question. The question is, what's the greatest commandment? And he responds and says, it's that you love God with everything you have. Oh, and, and here's a bonus for you. Uh, the second and like it is that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, these two ideas, these two commands form the foundation on which everything written in the law and the prophets is based. If you love God with all of your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says all the other commandments seem to take care of themselves. You know, Martin Luther looked at the Ten Commandments and you have the first two, one, that you should have no other gods before him and two, that you should worship no idols. And his argument was that if we simply were obedient to those two, we would never break any of the others because all sin is in some way some form of idolatry or self-worship or putting something else before God. In a similar way, what Jesus has said is that to love God with all of your heart And to love others is the foundation. It's the key that unlocks everything about what it is to walk with God. And this is an important reality. It's important because this idea of loving and loving well is often either neglected or twisted or misunderstood. But Jesus says that the centerpiece of the Christian faith is that. And I want to, again, point out that the love that we express to others is not the means of our salvation, But as we go through this, we'll find that it is the natural expression of it. See, we cannot love God if he has not saved us. The scriptures will tell us that we're in opposition to him. That rather than loving him and running to him, we run from him as rebellious children. Additionally, we cannot expect to truly love one another as we were designed until we understand the transforming grace of God. Because that experience will become the pattern of what we understand love to be. So we don't love well without God. We can't love God until he saves us. We can't really love one another the way we're designed until we have the Holy Spirit guiding us. And it's important to understand which comes first because that tells us immediately that God's expectation for us is not to love people really well and in doing so to earn our way into heaven. Rather, the love that we have is going to be a response of the work of God in saving us. This is what Jesus wants from us. More than that, this is what Jesus is going to do in us. The work of the Spirit of God is going to work on our selfish hearts so that we begin to love. So that we begin to love well and love sacrificially. Jesus would go on to say that this kind of relationship one to another should be the defining characteristic of his church. It should be such that that if we were to go to the outside world and play the word association game and say Christians or Christianity or church, that the immediate response would be they love one another. They love one another. Now, I haven't done this scientifically. I've not put together a poll. That's not my area of expertise. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's probably not the response we would hear. If we were to just to walk to, to downtown of any city uh, and do man on the street interviews, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure 
that that's not the response that we would get. And so not only is this an important piece of the Christian faith, again, it's one that somehow we have tended to get lost in the shuffle with, that has slipped in some way. And so I want you to look with me in John 13, verse 34, to see what Jesus has to say about our love for one another. And then we'll move uh, towards defining love. So John chapter 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have, lo- have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my di- disciples if you love one another. So here's what he tells us. He says, I've given you a pattern of love the way that I've loved you. You are to love each other. And in doing so, the world would be able to identify that you belong to me. And this is a simple equation. Someone looks like the person whom they follow. So the concept of a disciple is more than just someone who learns some information. It's someone who's being to be transformed into the likeness of the person leading them. So if we follow Jesus, our following of him is not simply to learn information from him, but rather be transformed to be like him. So he tells us in John 13, if we love the way he loves, the world will recognize him in us. They will be able to see this guy is a lot like Jesus. This lady is a lot like Jesus. I can see that in the way that they love one another. And so our love for each other is the external evidence to the world that we follow Jesus. But Jesus doesn't end it with that. In John chapter 17, as he prays for us, he reveals to us that our loving unity with one another is not only significant to the world seeing that we follow him, but the world seeing that he is from the Father. So look at John chapter 17, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Now, this is powerful. So I want you to get this. This is Jesus praying for us the evening he's to be arrested. And as he begins to pray, he says, I pray not only for my followers, but for those who will believe through them. And his prayer for us is that we would be united, that we would have an experience of unity and loving care for one another. And that in doing so, that the world would know that the Father had sent the Son. So I want you to think about this because this is unique. Jesus says that the argument that he has come from the Father, that he is the Savior, is not won or lost with rhetorical skill. So, so if I stand before someone who is an atheist or a non-believer or a skeptic, Jesus is telling us the most compelling evidence that he is from the Father is not going to be found in my ability to reason with them. That doesn't mean I shouldn't try to explain. We've got to communicate truth. But that's ultimately not going to be all that compelling. He says what will be compelling is going beyond just reason and rhetorical skill to actually demonstrating the power of the gospel in the lives of other people. And this is where it becomes so powerful that the church is a group of people from every tribe and language and background 
people who are rich and poor, people who are black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, uh, India, Indian, Native American, everything you can think of hobbled together into one family, loving one another as brothers and sisters. And when you see that, that is strange. That, that's unexplainable in the world's terminology. So, so the best the world can hope for in terms of drawing people together is integration, which means we live near one another and coexistence, we get along. But the idea of reconciliation across race, ethnic, and economic means, the idea of being brothers and sisters in spite of everything that the world would offer that divides us is obviously not of this world. And Jesus says when that occurs, when you have a unity that transcends everything that the world would use to divide you, that's an obvious demonstration of the Spirit's power. Because of that, it's a compelling argument to the world because it's unexplainable. We don't know how that happened. And Jesus says that our love and unity for one another is evidence, first, that we follow him, and second, that he is from the Father. So the question I think we need to ask ourselves is if loving is to be the main obvious characteristic of the church, what does it mean to love? What is love? And, and that sounds like a silly question, but it's an extremely important one. It's important because we use the word love in hundreds of ways that mean very different things. And so from a basic standpoint, we've got to ask the question, when the Bible uses the word love, what does it mean? Because in the same day, I might tell you that I love the Dallas Cowboys tacos, my wife and my children. And we mean very different things with each one of those, don't we? So love for us is a bit of a junk drawer word. In addition, even when we do dig into it, we, we throw weird ideas behind it. And so let me, let me throw a few things on the table. If someone I care for deeply is making life decisions that I believe to be destructive. And I go to them and I address that issue with them. Our culture does not view that as loving. Our culture views that as hateful and judgmental. I mean, you've seen it. In the sweetest possible tone, if you sit down with someone that you know who is in a same-sex relationship and you explain to them God's word and his hope and desire for them for something better, you are, according to our world's definition, not loving, but hateful and a bigot. And so when we talk about love, it's very important we get to back away from the common uses of it and begin to let God define what he means when he says that we are to love and he tells us that he loves us. See, our dictionaries will describe love in this way as a deep affection or desire for something. Often expressed in terms of physical affection and intimacy. So think about that definition of love. It is a deep affection or desire for something. See, our secular definitions of love involve possession and enjoyment of a thing. So when I say I love tacos, I, I mean I enjoy them. See, the problem is that we begin to take that view of love and extend it across every relationship so that loving someone is no longer about loving them, but it's about loving the way they make me feel. And in the end, I really don't love them, I love me. 
And they're a nice accessory to me. And I love me a lot. So I'll say I love them because that's the thing I need to say to get them to give me what I want that makes me feel the way that I love. That's not love. Love goes beyond an emotion or desire to possess and enjoy something to something much deeper. And so here's what I want us to do. We know what love is not. The Bible does a really good job of telling us what love is. And I want us to look at 1 John and let God define love so that we understand his command when he tells us to love one another. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So I want to stop just there. What's the source of love? This is not a trick question. What's the source of love? God. So if love is from God and originates from Him, who gets to define it? God. So what has God said love looks like? Well, let's keep going. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we start with this. God is the source of love. And because of that, he gets to define what love means. So as he's telling us to go love one another, he's telling it at the definition that he's created and then communicated to us. And he says, if you want to know what love is, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look to the cross. If you want to know what love is, don't go to Webster's. They're wrong. I want you to look to the cross because what the cross will show you is Jesus making payment for our sin. The word is propitiation, which is a theological term that means to satisfy payment or absorb wrath. So here's what we're looking at. I want you to see this is that love is an act of sacrifice, but it is not an act of overlooking sin. See, that's our cultural definition. They want to tell us, the world does, that to love is to is to pretend that sin doesn't exist or to endorse everything that someone has ever done. And if you can't endorse what I'm doing, you obviously don't love me. But the scriptures don't address things that way. The scriptures say, look, that, that the greatest example of love is Jesus making propitiation for sin. Which is to say, Jesus standing in our place, enduring the penalty that we deserve from a righteous God for sin. So note this, love does not overlook sin. Love addresses sin, looks it squarely in the face, and chooses to offer grace in response while absorbing the difficulty and harshness of sin. Love doesn't gloss over sinful behavior. Love responds to sin with grace. And so when we look to this, we we say God doesn't approve of sin because He made payment for sin. There's justice in this love. And he sent his only son to die for us that we might experience the love and joy from the father. But God made payment for sin. He did not pretend it did not exist. In a similar way, Romans 5.8 will say God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So he doesn't wait for us to move forward. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up and begin to become lovable. He simply chose to love us in the midst of our sin. Not pretending it did not exist, but rather looking at it, calling it what it was, choosing to love us in spite of that, and choosing to take sacrificial action to redeem us. He says, you understand what love is? You forget the idea of desiring to have something for your enjoyment. That's not love. But God defined love, and when He does, He says you look at the cross and you find sacrifice. Ephesians chapter 2 continues to explain this amazing love we have from God. And I want to encourage you to look there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved. And raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So this... Section of scripture begins with the, the word but, which tells us that there's a contrast. So what's just previous to that is God describing through the scripture about how sinful we were. How disobedient we were. And because of that, how far from God we were and how deserving of God's judgment we were. He says, but in spite of that, right, being honest about the sin, he looked at us and, and instead of judging us, gave immeasurable riches of grace through his love in Christ Jesus to us. So he looked our sin square in the face and all of our depravity. And in spite of that, he says, I'm going to be rich in mercy to them. and I'm going to love them and I'm going to take their dead hearts and I'm going to bring them to life. And I'm going to seat them in the heavenly places with me so that right, so that. For the coming ages, eons is the Greek word, I might display the immeasurable riches of my kindness towards them in Jesus Christ. God's act of love for us did not end at our salvation. That's the beginning of God loving us for ages. But it's all done through Jesus. It's all done in spite of our sin at great cost to Him. That all these blessings that we just described from our redemption... All of these gifts that we receive with the salvation that Christ offers are costly. These are not cheap things. Now, they are free to us because they are gifts. You notice that this isn't by work. You don't earn this. This is a gift given to you through God's grace when you believe. You you just believe and you receive this gift. But it was not cheap. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, one and only, special, unique, and beloved. He, he sent Him. That the world would not perish, right? But have eternal life. So you and I deserved to perish. And Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross for our sin so that we might be redeemed. And He says, this is the way love looks like. So if we're going to let the cross define love, 
We throw out this idea of, of affection or desire to have and enjoy something. This is what we come to as an operational definition. Is that love is the passionate desire for the good of another. Even if it costs us greatly. That's love. It is the desire for the good of another. Even if it costs us greatly. And so when we say we love someone. What we ought to be saying is that I love you so that I am willing to lay down my desires so that you could be blessed and benefited. That's the foundational uh, way that a marriage is intended to function. And I think that's one of the reasons that, that marriages tend to struggle in our culture is that, is that we walk into marriage with the understanding of love as this intense desire to have one another. Because we don't know them really well and so they seem awesome. Because you only, we only see each other when we're going out. And so I look clean cut and shaved and showered and I smell decent. And, and that's not me all day, every day. And so marriage goes beyond this glossy thing to where you actually see into that person's soul. Now, here's the reality. Anytime you see deeply into someone's soul, you're going to see something you really don't like there. And newsflash, that's the situation when someone sees into you as well. The problem is we didn't walk into marriage, a lot of us in this culture, believing that that was the reality and that God's design was to use marriage as we sacrificially loved one another and put others' interests above our own to sanctify and transform us. You see, the, the cultural kind of goal for a man in marriage, let me just, in, in the lowest common just be honest about this, that for a guy in our culture going into a marriage is, one, she doesn't nag too much, um, she, she Drops the weight after each baby. She cooks good and our love life is enjoyable. Okay? If you didn't know, ladies, I just informed you. That's it. That is not the biblical goal for a marriage. When I read the scriptures, you know what it tells me about a marriage? Is that, gentlemen, your goal is, is her sanctification. To wash her in the water, the cleansing of the word, right? That she might flourish and be delivered to the Lord without spot or blemish. So you think about this. That my goal walking into a marriage as a Christian man is not all of those things, but ought to be my wife to flourish spiritually. For her gifts to come out and to be used. And for her to walk faithfully with Jesus and be used mightily by Him. For her to experience the joy of walking with Christ. That's number one. Before any of that other stuff about me and how I look in front of my friends is, is this reality. That's love. Because that's not about what I receive, but rather what I see in them. And so when we begin to define love relationally. It comes down to this. Do I desire their good over mine? And will I sacrifice to pursue that? Now, does that involve emotions and passion and heart? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's the emotion. It isn't the desire to possess and enjoy. It's the desire to serve and bless. That's love. And so when we start to look at our call to love one another, we have to begin at that position. And what we'll find is that this passion to serve and bless begins to emerge as we begin to walk faithfully with the Spirit of God. And it happens in a couple things. We develop some new loves. One, as we walk with Jesus, we learn to love God. Learn to love God. 
See, outside of Christ, we don't love him. We either view him as as non-existent or an absentee landlord or an unrighteous judge, but not as a loving father. That's a reality that comes when we become part of the family. John spoke at length a few weeks ago about the joy and beauty of being adopted. And that's our relationship to God. He is our adoptive father. And in that moment that he makes us his own, he loves us perfectly. We love him imperfectly, but progressively growing. We're that adopted child who came from a family that didn't have the appropriate guidelines and parameters. And we push against our own new father. But over time, we learn to love him. We learn to trust his love for us. We learn to believe his promises. We learn to love him in response. But it's a learning process. In John chapter 14, Jesus begins to describe how this love for God changes not just emotions, but the way we live. In John chapter 14, verse 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. And so this is a beautiful promise here. And it, Jesus leads out with a difficult statement. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. He says, well, that's going to be hard. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to help you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to turn your heart towards the Father so that you'll learn to obey him. We talked about last week the strengthening and empowering work of the Spirit of God, giving us victory over sin. One of the beautiful things he does for us is simply, over time, progressively, turn our hearts towards our Father to love him. Desire to bless him, to make his name great, even if it costs us. So we learn to love our Father. It's the work of the Spirit in us. And, and I want to just point something out, that in the Christian faith, we don't just lay out a list of commands and say, go keep them. Remember, Jesus says this is about loving God and loving each other. And what he's communicating to us here is that as our love for God grows, our obedience to his commands will grow as well. And so the focus of the battle for us ultimately is, is not behavior modification. It's this heart change. We're beginning to love God more than we love whatever that sin was or whatever those things are goes down to the earliest command of not putting anything before God. Second to loving God, we'll learn to love one another. We'll learn to love our new family that we've been adopted into. So I want you to think through this blessing that we receive. So we get a new family and we have the Spirit of God at work in us. Remember First John, he told us that, that this is how you know what love is. That you saw Jesus die for you and in the same way go love each other. The love for the church that is growing is an evidence to the watching world. And, and lastly, one of the changes in our love relationship is that we no longer love the world and yet we love the world. And so this sounds like double talk. So I want to be clear. We love the world in the John 3.16 version of loving the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We are willing to sacrifice and be mistreated so that the gospel might spread. So that people will hear the good news. So we, we love the people of the world. And we want to serve them and we want to give them the good news of Jesus. But we don't love the things of the world. In First John chapter 2, we're warned against this. 
In chapter 2, I believe, verse uh, 15, we get this warning. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. So think about this. You don't love that stuff. There's a system of doing things in the world and a pecking order about possessions, desires, control, and comfort. He says, I want you to get rid of that and I want you to actually love people. So we don't love the world or its things, but we love the people of the world in a way that we serve them. And to be just very practical here as we come to a close, two things I want you to remember in a way of pursuing the path of love. And the first is this, break off your love affair with the world. End it today. End it. Call up, text, leave a voicemail. I don't care how you want to communicate it, but we end it today. What do I mean by that? Quit defining yourself based upon your possessions and success. Quit looking at other people comparatively so that you can lift up your own status. You see, when we're focused on the desires of the world, we're focusing on the cost of loving other people. Because to love someone means sacrifice. And it may mean setting those things aside. And when I focus on the things of the world, I'm only looking at what I have to lose if I sacrifice to care for another. So it becomes a significant barrier for me in loving sacrificially. And so I would say, stop it. Just quit. Remember that these things are passing away. They're temporary. They don't mean anything. And secondly, I would say this. Remember the good news. Remember the gospel. And this is why. It's the example of what love is and the target in front of us. And there's three ways I want to leave you with that the gospel liberates us to love well. The first is that we are constantly reminded of what love looks like because our cultural definitions are bad. They don't help us. And so we need to go back to a fixed point and say, okay, love, what, what does love look like? Oh, it means sacrificing for the good of another. I saw that in the cross. And so I'm constantly going back and being reminded of the pattern and the target that I have. Second, it reminds us that we are recipients of God's grace. That I don't stand before God and deserving of anything other than judgment, but he's given grace to me. And when I'm reminded that I need grace, I'm much more likely to be gracious to other people. And third, we remember that dying to self is not something to be feared but embraced because we know the good news of the resurrection. We know that this world and its pleasures are temporary and that the blessings of God are immeasurable riches in the coming ages. And we're reminded of the hope of the resurrection, the blessing of God. I can forego pleasure, comfort, and prominence here in order to love well because I know that the blessing is eternal. So when I look to the story of the cross and the resurrection, I'm reminded of what is truly important and that the pleasures of this world last for a moment, but there's a life to come that lasts forever that is exceedingly better. God has been so good to us. He has lavished His love upon us. And the Scripture depicts the reality that as we receive that love, it transforms us. We're getting a new heart so that we can love well, love new things and love to a new capacity. And I want to leave, leave you with this simple piece of truth that I got from a man named David Lonis. David's one of our supportive missionaries. Uh, the, one of the guys that I would choose to be my pastor because pastors don't always have a pastor. And so this is a guy that 
that I looked to in that capacity. And when he talked about the number of people in France that had come to faith in Jesus, he said, look, uh, we can't reason like they reason. Uh, you know, we're not native speakers of the language. We've learned it. But they think differently than we do, and I can't keep up with them. But this is what I can do. He said, I can outlove anyone. I can outlove anyone. And he says, as I look across the years of our ministry and the people who have come to faith in Christ, that has been the single issue that God has used to lead to their faith. That their conversion has been wrapped up in the reality that the church, because of the power of the Spirit of God, has the power to outlove anyone. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would work in us to draw us near to you, that we might be a people who pursue you wholeheartedly. Father, we pray that in that, that we would receive your love for us and that it would transform us so that we love. So that we have new loves as we have given up the love of the world and its possessions and using people so that we might receive some kind of accolade or pleasure or comfort, but rather embracing your definition of love. That centers around care for another and sacrifice to pursue it. Lord, I pray that that would become a defining characteristic of me, of our church. Beyond our walls of the churches and our region, the body of Christ at large, and that we would, through that, demonstrate the Spirit's power to outlove anyone, and that we'd see many people drawn to you. Lord, we thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus, and pray that you would use that by your Spirit to change us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.